Hello and welcome to the second series of Multiskill Musings. We are a network of computational science PhD students based at the University of Warwick who are producing a podcast all about theory and computation in the physical sciences. I'm your host, Idil, and joining me today is Stephen Seng, a fellow PhD student from the Warwick Chemistry Department. Today we will be discussing the latest developments in COVID research using computational efforts and joining us in this discussion is Associate Professor Phil Stansfeld from the Warwick Life Sciences Department. Now over to the podcast. Okay, and hello Phil and welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you on today. So to start off with, um, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about some of your current research interests? Okay. Hello, my name is Phil Stansfeld. Uh, I'm part of the School of Life Sciences and also the Department of Chemistry at the University of Warwick. Um, My research interest is predominantly studying biological systems, um, but using computers to do this. And so the predominant means is to look at dynamics uh, at the atomic level of a variety of different uh, macromolecular systems uh, with the aim of really being able to develop new drugs. And in particular, what we're interested in um, is developing new antimicrobial agents uh, to inhibit bacterial processes uh, and therefore kill uh, pathogenic bacteria. Um, And that's really of great concern due to the rise in drug resistance and and the concerns and potentially uh, the next 50 years problems really emerging uh, with uh, huge numbers of bacteria being resistant to the standard uh, beta-lactams, uh, of which penicillin is the, the archetypal example. Um, so that's a sort of overview of what we're interested in. Uh, we're interested in looking in, zooming in at these uh, macromolecular systems, but also being able to incorporate their dynamics. And, and we use uh, um, molecular simulation to do this. Oh, of course. Um, very interesting. Um, okay, so before we sort of delve into the science, um, perhaps let's talk a little bit more about some of your interests, your hobbies. Um, Essentially, how do you unwind after the long days of research? Um, So generally, I I like to go for a good long walk. So I I have um, two two dogs, uh, Max and Bella, two cockapoos, and they're they're, uh, generally what I will take out and about. I I live in a village uh, and alongside my wife and my two children, I'll generally go for a long walk with them on an evening. Um, Certainly now that we're getting into April, lighter nights, uh, and, and so it's, it's a great way to be able to go out and, and do things, having sat down all day, staring at a computer, uh, discussing with colleagues. Um, it's nice to be able to clear the air and, and be able to really walk out. Um, and then so alongside that, just being able to be active in some form. Um, so I'm regularly found in the garden and doing various bits of gardening, if, if, uh, if not planting plants. Um, putting down patios or, or doing something something that's not mentally stimulating, something that can be physically, um, so it, being able to, to do something that's quite distinct and different from the, the day-to-day. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, you know, a lot of people have sort of picked upon um, COVID hobbies, you know, as you can say. <laughs> <laughs> but, yours, you know, these are definite things that you can continue after the pandemic, hopefully. Oh, definitely. I hope so. It always was there before the pandemic, but it's certainly in the past year, it's been even more so. Being at home more regularly during the pandemic has has meant that uh, and not being able to go anywhere has meant quite a lot of things have been done in the house, which is fantastic. Um, uh, but it, it does mean, yeah, that there are, you do need to have time to unwind away from the computer screen because otherwise you're st- stuck in your study uh, and you can do that from uh, sort of waking up on the morning to the, the going to bed at night time because your your laptop is constantly there uh, for you to, to do your work. But uh, So to be able to escape that, going outside is, is really what I try to escape to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. OK, so my next question is, um, what's the biggest takeaway you think you'll carry uh, with you sort of post-pandemic in terms of your research? What's something that you've learned or, or implemented in your day-to-day research activities that you'd like to continue when you get back to the lab? I think the real thing I've learned over the past year is that the world's quite a small space. And so you can actually quite easily talk to collaborators and colleagues across the Atlantic and um, say our collaborators at, at Columbia University uh, in New York, and we, we, we speak to them on a weekly basis, if not uh, twice a week, um, to discuss current projects and uh, ongoing projects. And that could be just 15 minutes um, of, of a quick update. Um, but being 
able to be able to do that regularly and we, we did Skype previously but it's it's become much more a, a weekly activity of being able to talk to other colleagues who are not necessarily part of Warwick or, or not necessarily part of a UK institution um, so I, I mentioned my colleagues in Colombia but I also have colleagues in Frankfurt and, and also in the Netherlands um, who we, we regularly speak with and that, that really has enabled us to expand our research aims by being able to work with a, a wide range of, of international colleagues. Uh, and so if, if anything, from a science point of view, that's one of the major take homes. And um, the second take home is that we can adapt. And, and so the group as a whole has adapted to remote working. Uh, and I, I think there have been teething problems. There have been issues along the way. It's not the same as being able to share a coffee right, down in the cafe with, with colleagues. But we have been able to adapt and be able to have group meetings regularly online, one-to-one -one meetings regularly online. And I can see quite a number of these aspects being taken forward in uh, in, in future research. So uh, in terms of your, uh, I guess, academic career, I guess you can, I wanted to like ask you, were there any individuals or scientific heroes that you know inspired you to go into this field or, and if there were, like, who are they and what was it about them that you know, motivated you? So I, I'm not really one for heroes, but I, there have been certainly plenty of people who've, who've steered me in the direction of research, just because some areas of science I just find fascinating. Um, if I if I was to say one person in particular, uh, and this is this is based on undergraduate lectures more than anything else. Um, as, as I was learning my undergraduate, um, which was a biological science degree up at Edinburgh University, uh, one of the very first membrane protein structures was solved. Uh, and so this was a, a particular protein that's called a potassium channel. Uh, and it was from a bacteria. And the, the name of the protein is KCSA. Uh, and so within, within the field of membrane protein structural biology, this is a really famous protein. It's one of the very first proteins to ever been solved. Uh, and so the, 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 the international um, scientist who worked on this uh, across at, uh, who's now based at the Rockefeller is uh, Rod McKinnon. Uh, and so Rod McKinnon in 2003 also won the Nobel Prize uh, in chemistry um, for solving this protein structure. Uh, and so uh, I guess the fact that the, his protein, this KCSA protein, was discussed in lectures. Uh, and then as I started my PhD, which was on a potassium channel, he won the Nobel Prize. That pretty much steered my direction and interests. And, and if I was to say a, a scientific hero, Rob McKinnon probably would be uh, that person. So in, in, on top of being able to solve this one protein structure, KCSA, he has also um, captured the atomic level details of a range of different um, protein structures, predominantly potassium channels. But uh, he, he, he has really revolutionized the field using X-ray crystallography and then subsequently uh, cryo-electron microscopy to solve all these different protein structures. And, and it, I'd never really thought about the fact that you could see this level of detail for such key molecular machines um, prior to sort of my undergraduate lectures. It certainly wasn't something that was taught at school. And um, so that, that was just a quite, quite incredible to, uh, and re really I would say that that's sort of driven my research most notably within these membrane proteins, these proteins that are encapsulated within uh, lipid bilayers. So for, I guess, some of our younger listeners, is there, would you be able to like describe your academic journey so far so they can get an idea of like what path, you know, your path has been like up until now? Yeah, so I, I mentioned my sort of lectures in biological sciences and structural biology and sort of steered me in the direction of that sort of area of interest, notably those uh, topics uh, that was, uh, and the proteins that were solved by Rod McKinnon. Within those lectures up at, uh, at Edinburgh, we were also uh, taught by a wide range of people who studied using a technique called electrophysiology. Uh, and so this is where you record ion channels and the permeation of, of ions through uh, a protein. Um, and one of the, the lecturers on this was a chap called David Wiley, who's a professor up at, at Edinburgh University. Um, and so I, I, I was intrigued by his research. And so therefore, I, I decided for my final year project, I would take up um, a, a project within his lab. And so that was purely experimental at that point, and studying these iron, iron channel proteins and seeing um, how the binding of glutamate um, and otherwise other drug molecules bind to these proteins and then open these channels 
allow ions to go through. And then that electrical signal and change across the membrane you can record using a method called patch clamp electrophysiology. And so uh, to, to your listeners, this may be something that you've never come across before. And it's quite different from uh, molecular modeling and, and simulation-based computational techniques. But it was really coming across these techniques uh, that it was really the, the, the science that I was trying to study that really drove my interest in this. And so it wasn't necessarily electrophysiology that I was interested in, more the actual um, uh, the biology behind it. And so I, I wondered whether there were other means to be able to study these proteins. Could you look at these proteins at the molecular level? And I, I mentioned that Rob McKinnon had solved these structures at the molecular level. But could you use com computational studies to do this? Uh, and so David pointed me in the direction of a, a colleague down at the University of Leicester, uh, Mike Sutcliffe, um, who used molecular modeling to study these glutamate receptors, these ion channels. Uh, and so I, I went from Edinburgh University to start my PhD in Mike's group um, with the aim that I would do a bit of experimental work and a bit of molecular modeling. So the experimental work would be uh, with a colleague in pharmacology, John Mitchison, who's still based in, in the University of Leicester. But it ended up that I just purely did three and a half years of molecular modeling. Um, and so this was at the, the advent where I think the, the longest simulation time that we could run at that point was about 10 nanoseconds. It was some ridiculously short length of simulation. But it at least gave us a, a, a means to, to study some of these processes. Now, I've mentioned how uh, we could record using electrophysiology ions moving through these proteins. You can actually visualize using molecular simulation potassium ions moving through these proteins. And so that this event occurs um, one molecule moving every 10 nanoseconds. So we can just about within those 10 nanoseconds that I've just mentioned, see a single ion permeating. And so that was the sort of starting grounding uh, work during my PhD for then making me think, well, who else works on these proteins? Uh, and so I moved then to the University of Oxford uh, to start as a postdoc uh, within the lab of Mark Sansom. Uh, and so he'd worked for many years um, studying um, various different membrane protein structures, including these ion channels I've mentioned. Um, and indeed, I'd come across Mark's work and, and visited his lab during my PhD. So it was a natural progression to move from Mike Sutcliffe's group at the University of Leicester uh, to Mark Sansom's at, at Oxford. And, and so through that process, um, I, I sort of did a bit of teaching at, at Oxford, um, and I, I started teaching new students techniques uh, as we went along. And I guess the, my career progressed from there. Uh, having um, worked as a postdoc, I then had an opportunity to write a grant uh, alongside Mark, uh, which I was listed as a, a co-PI. Um, and so I was also the researcher on that as well. And so that, that research grant was funded and that was back in, I mean, I, I started my postdoc in 2007 uh, and then 2011, I wrote this proposal, which was funded by the BBSRC. And so that gave me a bit more autonomy, so an independence um, to, to be able to then study what I really wanted to do, which was look, looking not just as these ion channels, but generally looking at a wide range of different membrane protein structures, including those within bacteria. Uh, and so that, that grant lasted three years, uh, at which point then I got a departmental fellowship and to then work um, for, for, well, pretty much until 2019. Um, and then I, I ended up joining the University of Warwick as an associate professor. And so what, what I always spent my time at, at Oxford was really working up the career ladder. So what, how could I advance myself to the next level, not just working on a single project, but a whole wide range of different projects and, and not just working on projects that interest me, but also projects that were interesting to collaborators as well. And, and so by sort of casting my net wider, uh, that I, I think... Uh, enabled me to, to progress uh, through what is quite a challenging route of going through academic, academia uh, and, and being able to then get to where I wanted to be, uh, which was a lectureship position and uh, associate uh, professor level, uh, which I, I currently am at now, 18 months on uh, from starting at the University of Warwick. I hope that was, I mean, that was a bit of a long-winded answer to a, a quite a short and succinct uh, question, uh, but I hope that gives you an idea of me starting my undergraduate studies at Edinburgh, moving down to do my PhD at the University of Leicester, postdoctoral and fellowship routes uh, at Oxford, uh, and then 18 months ago, starting at the University of Warwick. 
So would you describe your like um, research is all like computational now? And not like experimental. Yeah, so th this is a, this is a good question because it's it's what I'm thinking about currently. So my my as I mentioned, my undergraduate studies were very much experimental. Um, but I, ever ever since then, so I finished my my undergraduate in 2003. Ever since then, I've been purely computationally based, and and I've always had success in being able to, or at least in the past few years, um, getting research funding, um, for uh, purely computational um, studies. As I move away from the computer and I become more of a sort of lab supervisor, or overseeing manager or whatever you want to call me as a PI and seeing processes and, and the, the work that goes on within my research group. Is there any reason why I couldn't also run an experimental lab as well and be able to therefore develop hypotheses within the computer? That they then could be tested experimentally. Now, convincing the funders that I, can, I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm talking about, that's going to be a different matter. Um, but there is no reason, I don't think, especially as we move into uh, a brand new building by the end of this month. So you may not have come across this. So the, the IBRB, which is the um, Interdisciplinary Biosense, uh, Biosciences Research Building, um, is this great, well, I wouldn't call it monstrosity. It's a beautiful thing that sits up on G Gibbet Hill. Uh, and you probably haven't seen it because it's sprung up uh, in the past year of the pandemic. And so incredible that they've been able to construct this. But within that research lab is an opportunity to not just do computational work, but also do a bit experimental work. Um, because we have a whole floor that's dedicated to infectious diseases. Uh, and so that's the, the research labs that I'm going to be associated with. Actually, a week on Friday uh, from now. So when, when listeners are listening to this, I'll have moved in already on the, uh, the 30th of April. Um, that's, this is, uh, this is where, where we're going and, and therefore a potential to do both computational and experimental work. Come, come, back, come back to me in five years' time to see whether this has actually panned out <laughs> plan or whether I, I still do everything on a computer. Oh, we will. We sure will. So is there anything you would have liked to have known, like, when you started in research that you wish, you know, that you had known? That, I mean, that you know now that you wish you knew I don't back know. then? I mean, if, in terms of science research, I, I'm pleased I didn't know too much back then because the, it, what it meant was that there was more to discover and more to find out. And I, I, I don't know about uh, Stephen and Idil listening in here, whether either of you are, are keen to discover new things. Uh, and I, I, think, I think fundamentally that's part of what life's about. So you will make mistakes as you go along. There will be th certainly things that I, I wish I knew at the start, but I, th I think it's probably best that I didn't know them because I was able to then stumble along my own way, make my mistakes, learn from those mistakes to then push forwards. I can't think of anything necessarily specifically that would actually th really enhance me because I think making those mistakes really helps. No, right. definitely. I mean, that's what makes yeah. a scientist, right? Yeah, these are these are important skills to have. Okay, it's so... It's often like the, the journey that's like what's valuable and not like the end prod, that piece of paper that you get at the end, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certainly things where I think, thought about, why, why did I do that? Why, 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 did, why we, we've just wasted a couple of months' work. We could have done it this way. But it, if we hadn't have wasted those couple of months' work, we wouldn't have known there was a more efficient way to do it. We'd have nothing mm -hmm. to compare to. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now for some more sort of teaching-related questions. Okay, so we've had, we've had a mixture of responses from previous interviewees about their preferred teaching strategies. So whether that be the, uh, the so-called flipped classroom model or, or the, the talk and chalk lecturing style. But um, what would you say your preferred teaching tools are, especially when it comes to sort of the computational side of things? Is there any particular software you like? Okay, so I, I guess Idil and Stephen, you could probably comment based on, on my, my teaching style, having recently been part of the biomolecular simulation course. And I, I ultimately like as best as possible for the students to have hands-on experience of whatever application or or knowledge that I'm trying to transfer. Because me just speaking to you is only partially helpful. It, it, it's quite easy after 15 minutes during a lecture to switch off and think about other things. But if you're actually doing something as a student, that actually means that you have to think about what you're doing. And so 
if I, if I, as a lecturer or a, um, a teacher, I can guide you in the right direction for how you'd apply something. And, and so as part of the, uh, the biomolecular simulation practical, I, I aim to have a hackathon, which was to give you hands-on experience of being able to use some of the techniques that we'd uh, previously covered in the, the, the sort of five weeks prior to that. I think that's true both for um, workshops, for lecturing, uh, but also tutorials as well. I will generally ask questions during, during tutorials because it's no point me just telling you what you should know if you if that if you don't learn that way. And um, so if I ask you questions, hopefully somebody in the room will be able to have an answer and hopefully all everybody will have an answer in the room, but somebody will be willing to be forthcoming with it with a particular answer. And if the answer isn't forthcoming, well, I'll tell you that the answer. Um, but I, I, some sort of interactivity is, is absolutely essential. Um, how, how one does that um, is quite challenging, especially across teams and certainly un at an undergraduate level where you've got about 100 people within a, a team's window and you ask a question quite frequently, you'll just be out, uh, faced with silence. So you have to frame that question sensibly and, and allow the students to be confident enough to provide the answers. And, and so if they're not willing to vocalise that, to add it in the Teams chat window uh, is something that has been very successful over the past year of pandemic. Uh, people are quite willing to type things, they're less willing to, to actually uh, speak um, about it. So yeah, if, if anything to summarise what I've just said, it's really being able to be hands-on uh, with any of your learning um, uh, and so to be able to facilitate that as a, as a lecturer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so you know, for students out there who are interested in biomolecular simulations, is, is there a particular academic track or, or modules that you would recommend they take, especially if they're coming from a sort of a non-computational background, which most students are? I mean, it, it, it's interesting. This, 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 this question is very interesting because within my research group and, and the groups that I've been associated with, people have come from a wide range of backgrounds. People have come from an engineering background, physical sciences background, physics background, chemistry Bio, bio, biochemistry, maths. So that there isn't a single track that leads towards biomolecular simulation. Uh, ultimately, it depends where you're going to go from there, I, I suppose, is the, 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 the real question, answer to the question. So even if you join my group or, or started doing biomolecular simulations, you come with your own personal expertise to performing the, that bit of research. But if you then want to go on to become a, a lecturer and you've come with a maths background, perhaps staying in that sort of biomolecular simulation at a, 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 a life sciences point of view may not be the most applicable. Maybe it's best to take what you've learned from the biomolecular simulations to then go back to maths to then show um, other um, students within maths how one can use other techniques such as biomolecular simulations within within i mean maths is probably a bad example there but it, you, to, to maybe model model pandemics let's say or, or, or something um less obtuse but it's certainly the case that you don't need to come in with a specific background into to the, the research group um, and so I, I can't say that there is a defined route I rather like my route, that I've come in with a knowledge of biological systems to then apply a different computational um, technique to, to study this. But it's balancing, therefore, technique and your own knowledge uh, that is probably the most key thing. So you, you could have a, a really excellence in computer science but not know much in biology. So you therefore have the, the computing skills, but you wouldn't have the biological skills. So during... Um, your sort of learning process, either as a postdoc or a PhD student, um, you would then learn the biological side of things, having already had the computing excellence. I, 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 what it ultimately means is never say that door is closed to you because you don't have the correct skill set, because you can always learn that skill set. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's something that perhaps uh, Stephen and I can probably speak to. So <laughs> <Yes>, we <laughs> can understand, yeah. Now, so far in our podcast series, we've interviewed uh, physicists, chemists, engineers. Um, can you tell us what role computational tools and biomolecular simulation has played in some of the biggest biological discoveries that have been made over the past couple of decades? Might be a broad question. But that, yeah. that is quite a cutting edge question. So I, I guess if I address it initially from a simulation point of view, um, a couple of years ago, um, let me remind myself exactly what year. So is it 2013? 
there was a, a three uh, academic scientists won the Nobel Prize for their sort of methods in terms of studying uh, multi-scale molecular modelling of biological systems. And um, so that was Karplus, Warshaw and Levitt. Uh, won the Nobel Prize. And, and it really was the development, therefore, of, of me, a means to simulate and study biological processes, chemical processes, uh, using computers, um, applying the sort of known physical approaches. That obviously provides a lot of the groundwork. How does that then get applied to, to then study something that is meaningful to the general public? Uh, and so an awful lot of work has gone in over the past year in using um, molecular simulation approaches to study, say, the SARS spike protein. And, and so there's a lot of really great um, dynamic work that's being done uh, in studying uh, not just this spike protein, which is important for how um, the, the virus actually attaches to the host cell, but just how it's dynamic and, and functionalized um, by a whole range of sugar groups, so these glycans that sit on the surface. And so without molecular modeling and simulation, we don't know how dynamic the, this system is. We have an idea of the overall structure of the spike protein, but we don't know how it's decorated by a whole range of different sugars. And, and molecular simulation has really been able to show this. They've also been able to show, much like you tried within your hackathon, um, how um, the spike protein engages with the ACE2 receptor. Uh, and therefore, um, how a, a virus, uh, a SARS-CoV-2 virus, will be able to then affix to an epithelial cell by binding uh, between the spike protein um, and, the, and the, the ACE2 receptor. This has also gone in the opposite direction. So we can look at the specifics of that interaction between, say, this N501Y mutation uh, that is enhanced binding between the spike protein and uh, the, the, the ACE2 receptor. But simulations have also been performed on whole virions and looking at a whole SARS-CoV-2 virus and the, the dynamics of that with all these spike proteins decorated on the surface. And I, I think being able to not just see a static image, but also to see the motions uh, of these molecules is really important for, for showing just how these proteins, just how these viruses actually uh, work in reality. Uh, and, and being able to then sell that to the general public, it's probably sell, say, selling is probably the wrong word, but but being able to share it with the general public. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Right. Okay. So my, my next question is, um, or rather statement, I could say. So in the field of machine learning and uh, data science, one of the primary drivers has been the abundance of data. Uh, and that's been accumulated and sort of made available for analysis. Has sort of the biomolecular field experienced something similar and and if so, what sorts of um, types of data has you know sort of propelled this field? So as, as part of the research grant that I uh, devised back in 2011, uh, it was to develop a, a database of all membrane protein structures that had ever been solved by experimental means. And so we, when we were de developing this, um, there was probably about 800 or so uh, of these membrane protein structures, these proteins that are absolutely essential um, to how we function, how bacteria function, uh, how viruses function. So this spike protein that I've just mentioned, how, how the SARS-CoV-2 virus works uh, and what it binds to in our, our cells, our membrane proteins. There are these proteins that sit on the outside of the cell uh, and are therefore accessible um, to, to, to interaction, both uh, other proteins, but otherwise drug molecules as well. Um, and so I developed this database, um, and over the years, um, this has been populated by a wide range of new membrane protein structures. And so we started out at 800 structures within MemprotMD, that's the name of the database. And, and now we've got over 5,000 uh, of these uh, proteins sitting in the database. And that may not be the sort of large-scale data science that you're talking about, um, but within that, we have simulations of all of these different membrane protein structures. And the idea is that we take these structures that have been solved and generally stripped uh, of their native environment. And so as membrane proteins, they sit within a lipid membrane, lipid bilayer. And so what we do within MemprotMD is we bring the lipids back uh, around these protein structures. And so from that, you get a whole load of information about what are the key interactions that are made between the membrane protein and its native environment. It tells you regions that are accessible to solvent, to, to water and ions, but it also tells you which regions interact with uh, lipids. And the reason why we're interested in this is 
if you can propose where solvent binds or otherwise where lipids bind, you can maybe propose where a drug molecule might bind as well. And so one of the questions that you could look at within this database is, can one predict based on a given structure, which regions have a key lipid binding site? And if you can predict where a key lipid binding site is, you could also suggest, well, maybe to compete with that, a, dr a small molecule could be developed to inhibit that lipid binding and therefore uh, affect function. And so I reviewed uh, a paper uh, about uh, a week ago, and this is probably something I won't go into too much detail about because it's confidential because it hasn't been released yet. But that paper used some of the, the, the simulations that we deposited in our database, MemprosMD, to then provide uh, a computer metric for proposing based on that data, where specific lipid binding sites are. So that was, in a way, using machine learning to then identify uh, lipid binding sites on membrane protein structures uh, without performing those simulations that we'd previously performed. Uh, and so for me, that was really nice because somebody was just taking my data that's just sitting online. We generated this uh, over the past uh, 10 years now and being able to use that data to then apply it to a means to, to, to predict using a, a quick algorithm where a lipid would bind. And so, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the next challenge would be if you can propose where that lipid binds, can you also propose how a sort of small molecule might also interact at that site without performing any simulations, just using the data that's provided? Right, so continuing on, I guess, just, I guess focused on your research, which you were you know, talking about right now, I noticed that a large part of it is focused on studying these like uh, lipoproteins and how they're critical to forming the outer membrane of multi-drug resistant bacteria. Yeah, absolutely. Can you, yeah. Yeah, can you like uh, explain what lipoproteins are and I guess, uh, you know, what mechanism, I guess, about them that uh, would be helpful for developing no novel antibiotics? Yes, yeah, so, so these proteins are, are not found in any other life form apart from bacteria. Uh, and so uh, they're called lipoproteins because they have a, a lipid component and also a protein component. So uh, they're secreted proteins from a bacterial cell. So they're basically spat out of the bacteria uh, and they fulfill really key functions on the outside surface of a bacterial cell. And so these are found um, both within drug-resistant tuberculosis or otherwise other pathogenic organisms such as Klebsiella which have, have, or, or gonorrhea, um, which have got a wide range of, of drug-resistant features. Um, but because these lipoproteins, these lipid-anchored um, proteins, uh, are only found within bacteria, they're potentially a good target um, for novel antimicrobials, because if you designed a molecule that could bind to any of these proteins, you wouldn't then have a toxic effect on yourself. So you wouldn't have a toxic effect on humans because these drug molecules would only bind to a lipoprotein. They wouldn't bind to any of the human um, proteins. And so it's not just the lipoproteins we're interested in. We're also interested in how they're made. Uh, and so bacteria and also ourselves have sort of almost factory lines of proteins and they're all working in tandem with one another to do a processing um, to, to mature each and every one of these proteins. And so, as I said before, this, these proteins, these lipoproteins have a lipid anchor as well as a protein component. And so the protein component is, is secreted out, it's spat out of the cell by uh, a, a protein called SEC. Uh, SEC is short for secretion. And then it goes through a process of coming in contact with three distinct enzymes. And these three distinct enzymes we've worked on quite extensively over the years and because they're really important for how a lipoprotein is matured. So initially, these proteins are anchored to a membrane by another protein component called a transmembrane helix. It's a helix that goes all the way across a, a biological membrane. And this is... Uh, added to by a, the first enzyme, which adds uh, a lipid tails um, from a lipid that's just freely swimming around in the lipid membrane. And then the second protein chops off the transmembrane helix. It just gets rid of it, decides it's no longer required because you have this two lipid anchor to the membrane. 
And then just to reinforce the fact that it gets affixed to the membrane, this lipoprotein, there's a third enzyme that then does uh, an additional task, which is adding a, another lipid tail to the lipoprotein. And so that tightly affixes the lipoprotein to the membrane. And so if you can inhibit any of those processes, you could stop uh, the maturation of uh, the biogenesis of these proteins. And this biogenesis process is really important because the Lipoprotein in many cells doesn't just sit in the inner membrane, it gets spat all the way across to the outer membrane. And so I'm probably speaking about too much biology here, but a bacteria, um, and, and certainly these bacteria called um, gram-negative bacteria, have two membranes. They're, they're known as diderms. They have an inner membrane and then an outer membrane. And quite a number of key features and processes occur at the bacterial outer membrane. And if they don't function properly, if the outer membrane doesn't function properly, the bacteria doesn't thrive. It's not successful. It's therefore easier for our immune system to kill. It's easier for it to be killed by antibiotics as well. And so these lipoproteins fulfill some really crucial tasks within the outer membrane, but they've got to get there first. And so now they've got three lipid tails stuck to them in the inner membrane. There's a protein called LOL that needs to do the pumping process all the way across the periplasmic space. So this is the space between the inner and outer membrane. And, and so LOL does this. It's not laugh out loud. It's a, a lipoprotein localization um, transporter. So a bit, bit less fun. I'm sorry. Um, but you need this transport system to do the pumping process, get it to the outer membrane, and therefore it can fulfill some really key tasks. And one of those tasks, just to give you a bit more information, um, is um, by forming a complex, so a complex which has four lipoproteins called BAM. Uh, and BAM uh, does the insertion of other proteins into the outer membrane. Uh, and that's been shown to be really, really functionally very important for gram-negative bacteria. Indeed, in nature, just last week, there was a new antibiotic that was identified called daptomycin, um, no, darabactin, my mistake, darabactin binds uh, to BAM and therefore can kill bacteria and or stop it from thriving. And so it, by binding to this large-scale lipoprotein complex, we can have a new antimicrobial. And this darabactin is not used. It's not used within the clinic at the moment, but you can imagine analogues of that molecule being developed in the, to therefore uh, be used as, as novel antimicrobial agents. And so this is why we care about lipoproteins. Are there any, I guess, current drugs or treatments that, uh, you know, that function in a similar way as to what you were describing with this like lipoprotein? Yeah, I mean, it, there are plenty of proposed molecules. And in a way, it's quite straightforward to propose a molecule that could inhibit any of these processes. Whether it's incredibly efficient at that and has a high affinity is the challenge. Uh, and then being able to go through the whole pharmaceutical process of, of being able to design and develop a drug to then take it all the way through the clinical trials and then for a GP to be able to, to uh, suggest that this should be a prescribed drug and, and for a, pharma a pharmacy to actually stock this molecule, um, that, that's a different matter, especially as the beta-lactams are so successful at the moment at being able to inhibit these processes by binding to penicillin binding proteins. And, and so while a range of different molecules have been proposed, getting them through to clinic, which is an incredibly expensive process, is not a particularly cost-effective means. But we've seen in the past year of the pandemic just how important it is that vaccines are developed or otherwise other inhibitors such as dexamethasones, other things that would help patients who are suffering from infectious diseases. Why it's so important that we do have within our armory new methods um, for killing bacteria, because without those, drug-resistant infections are only going to arise, uh, and we're going to be struggling in about 50 years' time. Mm -hmm. Sorry for the doom merchant to end there. Well, speaking of, I remember like around the time of our hackathon, the uh, World Health Organization was doing an inquiry within China about the origins of the coronavirus. And I don't know if you're familiar with their findings, but if you are, were you satisfied with what they concluded? I, I don't think anybody was particularly satisfied with what was found because ultimately 
they didn't really tell us too much. And, and it, can it, but it, one could understand just how difficult it is to track that patient zero, find out where the origins were for this pandemic. It, it, we'd ultimately want to know what the answer of this is. But the problem is that so many people are asymptomatic with SARS-CoV-2 <laughs> that it quite possibly would be the case that somebody has wandered into this market with SARS-CoV-2 and because it's a high dense populated area that they've then just spread it around within the market this Wuhan market mm-hmm. I'm afraid I can't remember the name and so although that's been described as being the epicenter where a lot of cases originally emerged from there's nothing to say that it didn't start prior to that with maybe a few lower lying cases and you, you can certainly see that within the UK there were various different points within the UK epicenters for the new infections within the UK and and they spread without us really recognizing it because people weren't being tested and traced at that point. And that certainly would be in the case in China, a brand new virus and um, that there was no way to really test it and track it. Um, and so uh, we've had previous cases, previous outbreaks, MERS, SARS, similar viruses have emerged. And, and not, finding out where they originate from is, is challenging. And of course, it has similarity with a bat virus that was found mm-hmm. in a local cave. Uh, and also that was being experimented on within uh, one of the laboratories in Wuhan. And, and so a lot of people like this sort of conspiracy theories that it, it was a lab leak seems seems unlikely but they have happened previously so you can't discount it and i i, I do feel for the who and um, because um they had a really difficult challenge of being able to go back in time to work out where this whole pandemic started and so i don't think there would ever be a well there is a correct answer but finding that correct answer must be incredibly challenging, and, and I, I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, one like fact I found really uh, interesting was that the, those bat caves are located like located about a thousand miles away in a totally different pro- province. So they were suspecting that the Isa wildlife farms where these animals were transported to Wuhan were, you know, that were the source of the virus. I mean, that was the pathway for this, uh, yeah, you know, sure. infection. Yeah, but would you suspect that if uh, they went to those? Uh, farms and maybe look at the people that were along the routes of these uh, animal transportation truck whatnot that you could find maybe there were like smaller outbreaks for even yeah i, I think that's sort of it feels like right. it could, could well be a good good example of, of another route that they could choose to to find out where mm-hmm. it started from um i mean certainly the, the poor pangolin was was suggested as being an intermediary between the bat and before it reached the human hosts but the, the suggestion was that in the wuhan market there weren't even any pangolins despite the, all the other animals that were kept there that there wasn't a, a pangolin that could possibly do this transfer so yes there, there could be a wide range of different means and, and see so, as you're saying thousands of miles away at this um these caves where the the bats that carry similar um sars-cov-2s yeah it, it's emerged from there but how it's got to wuhan in the first place I, I don't think we'll ever know so i mean i think i was noticing how like um in because i just took this like machine learning module about neural networks and how that has been the impetus for uh, a huge leap in i guess artificial intelligence research is there anything that you can I mean, perhaps in biomolecular simulations or this field that you think that could, I don't know, allow it to take either a similar leap or has there been, I guess, a development that has allowed it to take, you know, a similar jump, I guess, in research? So I guess that the most uh, stunning developments in recent times, that's not quite molecular simulation, but a lot of the rules of the force fields that are applied to molecular biomolecular simulation in recent times. The major breakthrough um, has been a development of AlphaFold and AlphaFold2. And so this is um, by DeepMind, um, who are a subsidiary of Google. And so what they've been able to do um, is to fold. Um, so this is constructing protein structures just using a computer to a whole range of, of new um, protein structures that have never been seen experimentally previously. And they were able to develop so in the AlphaFold2 um, to, to take a, an amino acid sequence and fold that protein structure just based on that amino acid sequence. And so this is an absolute breakthrough in the field because it means that 
ultimately, you wouldn't need to spend these expensive techniques such as X-ray crystallography, cryo-EM, or otherwise nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy to be able to therefore work out what a protein structure looks like. And so they were immeasurably successful in the last competition. And so this competition, which is called the Critical Assessment of Structure Prediction uh, that was held last year, they, they blew all their competition out of the park um, with their sort of outstanding predictions of protein structures. And, and so they, in that case, are comparing to hidden structures, structures that are not released to the general public, to, not released to the competitors prior to the, the competition starting. But pretty much all of their structures, they got nearly exactly right uh, when compared to the experimentally determined structures. And so by throwing a huge amount of computational power, which uh, they are backed by Google after all, um, they were able to then use their methods and uh, there are neural networks within their methodology to therefore be able to fold these protein structures. The trouble is, are they going to share their code? And I suspect that they will not. And, And so for the point of view of open science, Uh, which we very much do within the Stansfell Research Group. We have a variety of tools that are on GitHub. We otherwise have databases which share all of our information. Really, I hope that at some point, AlphaFold or otherwise AlphaFold 3, 4, whatever it ends up being, will be accessible for all scientists to use, not just those that have the computational power uh, of Google to be able to, um, to solve these protein structures. This, this will be immeasurably useful for, for my research group because we do not need, we at the moment collaborate extensively with experimental colleagues who solve protein structures. If we can solve those protein structures just by using a computer, then we can do all of our simulations, our drug predictions without doing a single experiment. On the topic of Google, like one phenomenon I, you know, I've been seeing, just seeing in academia for many years now, is that a lot of my like PhD colleagues, after they finish their degree, they go on to like companies like Google or, um, mm-hmm. you know, Thales as like software engineers, because they have all this computational training, but they don't do, I guess, any more research after that. I mean, I think, I mean, outside my personal views, which is that I feel like this is a, a loss, but how do you feel about this? And uh, what do you think the, I guess, what measures do you think or policy should be implemented to, I guess, uh, motivate people to stay within some kind of research field? I think longer term contracts might be the best way forward there. There is a, a real difficulty within academia that you are found that you could go from one software engineer position within a university institute that is only three three years in length. And so you're constantly thinking about what, what is next. Whereas if you go to a company like Google or otherwise a pharmaceutical company, you're more likely to have a, a tenured position. You, you have a permanent position uh, or otherwise a rolling contract. And so the real way to enable more people who have incredible skills that go off to these industries is to be able to have longer term contracts and, and be, be it longer term grants, therefore. And, and one thing that should be noted is that Welcome have uh, gone towards this route. So these are this is a charity that is a major funder for a lot of the research that we do. And they've just just, uh, announced eight-year discovery positions. And so you can apply for a grant that could last for up to eight years. And that could mean, therefore, somebody who's going to develop a tool over those eight years has a a lot more time to really, um, I don't know, flourish within an academic setting um, that they otherwise may not be able to because they're so worried about, well, what do I do next? What's my next sort of pathway uh, within my career path? And I I talked to you about my own career path. I I never really had that concern, even though I went to Oxford only on an 11-month contract initially. I I gambled, I went for that, but then that was always extended because we were able to sort of push it forward. But not everybody's been quite successful. And that was, that's luck more than anything else. And, And it shouldn't be the case that it's based on luck. It should be based on a, a, a good skill set. And certainly, Stephen, the, the colleagues that you mentioned who've gone off to Google and off to industry, I think they're a real loss to academia and, and certainly a great gain to the industries. However, many of the funding bodies do encourage 
that as a route for people within the academic setting, that we're training people within academia to then go off and, and really improve the economy of the UK or otherwise internationally by, by being able to, to, to be an investment in those industrial settings. Yeah, yeah, definitely. OK, so my final question to you today is um, what, what is one piece of advice you would give to a young researcher starting in the field? Um, hint, hint, this is for me and Stephen. <sighs> I think that maybe maybe you should switch. Would uh, not share this with your uh, your supervisors of your current PhDs. Um, I, I think the best advice would be have a side project. Have have a have an idea of what you want to take forward. What what is the thing that you really really want to study in years to come? And so you can spend I don't know four and a half days of the the, the research week thinking about your main research project. But in that afternoon, that Friday afternoon. Think about what you would like to do that could be this sort of crazy idea that you could take on to the next level. And I've always tried to do that. I've tried to have an idea of something. If I can find time to do something, I don't know whether it will work. And there's been plenty of failures along the way. I must outline that from the outset. But there'll be one or two of those ideas will work and you'll be able to take those forward and either apply it within an academic setting or also, and maybe it will work during your PhD. That would be the fantastic thing. But you'd also be able to take it on uh, to your future careers as well. Ideally, that should be within your skill set. And it also should be only a portion of time that you dedicate to it because you must complete your PhD. That That is an absolute essential thing for any PhD student. They must finish their PhD, write up a thesis, get vivid, get that doctorate. That's what you've been working towards. But have a, have a bit of time for that level of ingenuity, that idea that's been itching at the back of your mind that you want to try and push forward. Find time to be able to do that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, well, it looks like we've just cut one of run out of time. And uh, thank you very much to today's guest, Phil Stansfeld. We've enjoyed having you, having you on here and definitely learned a lot about biomolecular simulations. And of course, you know, some of your research on COVID, which has been quite interesting to hear about. So uh, we'll, we'll now let you get on with the rest of your day's research activities. Thanks again. Thank you both. Great to speak to you. Thank you. And that concludes this episode with Phil Stansfeld. And we hope you've enjoyed listening. As usual, if you have any comments or questions about this episode, you can reach us on our Twitter page, at Multiscalemuse. Do join us next time for another interesting scientific discussion with Francesca Belletto, a senior lecturer working in the theory and simulation of condensed matter group at King's College London. And that's it from us. Goodbye. <laughs>